I thought I knew Dennis, but you never really know someone. Everyone has a private side. There are a number of missing persons cases right here in the Carolinas, and some have received more media attention than others. These are the stories that tug at our heartstrings, make us pray it never happens to anyone in our families, and wonder if there is still any way to find closure for these missing persons and their loved ones. I'm Renee Robertson. Please join me for Missing in the Carolinas. Welcome. Today's episode is the conclusion of a two-part series about Liz and John Calvert from Hilton Head Island, South Carolina, who went missing in March 2008. I encourage you to go back and listen to episode 5 if you haven't already, as it details what happened in the initial days of the disappearance and the subsequent investigation, including the prime suspect in the case. Also, this episode contains details of murder and suicide that may be disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. To give a brief recap of last week's episode, Hilton Head Island residents Liz and John Calvert mysteriously vanished in March 2008 after a meeting with their accountant, Dennis Gerwing. They had hoped to address their suspicions of money missing from the reserve accounts of several businesses they owned on the island. The meeting was supposed to take place in the offices of the club group in Seapine Center on the evening of March 3rd. The next day, John missed an important meeting he had scheduled with an employee. The Beaufort County Sheriff's Office began their search for the missing couple shortly thereafter. Within days, investigators zeroed in on Dennis Gerwing. He was the last person confirmed to see the missing couple, and within a few days, he had retained the services of a lawyer and quit cooperating with investigators. Here were a few of the reasons he was under suspicion. Dennis had purchased three industrial-grade drop cloths the afternoon of his meeting with the Calverts, telling his personal assistant that he needed them for a painting project. Those drop cloths were never found. He was also caught on a local CVS surveillance camera in the hours after his meeting with the Calverts, 
buying band-aids for a cut on his hand and a box of latex gloves. Those latex gloves were also never found in subsequent searches. He powered his phone off for about six hours after the meeting with the Calverts and didn't return to work the next day until about 1 p.m. During the search of his home, investigators found a shovel with fresh dirt and no indications of what he had used the shovel for, as well as an empty gun holster for a 22 Beretta he had owned. This was all circumstantial evidence, but when you add in the fact that Dennis's business partner had ordered a forensic audit of all the club group's business accounts, Dennis may have felt the walls closing in on him. He seemed agitated in the days following the Calvert's disappearance and repeatedly told friends and family that the police suspected him. On March 11th, Dennis was discovered in the condo he was staying at, deceased in the upstairs master bathroom. Investigators found a note scrawled in pen on a bedsheet in the master bedroom, and there was also a note on the bathroom vanity with a couple of drops of blood on it. The notes appeared to explain why he had embezzled money from the club group and talked about various investments that hadn't paid off. It also said, in part, P.S. I have acted completely alone in all actions committed. I knew the risks of this happening and believe taking myself out of the game is the best way to move everyone as quickly as possible past all events. All anger should be directed towards me. Burn my body and dispose without service. It happened in SPC, Seapine Center, nothing at Bent Tree House. The scene inside the master bathroom was gruesome. Dennis was naked in the bathtub, which had no water in it. A comforter and pillows were underneath his body. The entire top surface of the tub was covered in dried blood, as was his body. He had multiple jagged wounds, one on his right inner thigh and calf, two wounds to the back and inside the left wrist, and his throat appeared to have been violently slashed. All the walls were heavily splattered with 360 degrees of blood. There was one set of bloody footprints on the floor in front of the vanity. A toxicology report found that Benadryl was the only drug in Dennis's bloodstream, and it was likely an amount large enough it would have eventually killed him. So why did he choose to cut himself up in such a painful manner? Dennis Gerwing was 54 years old when he died. A Louisville, Kentucky native, he had lived on the island for about 20 years when his troubles began. Most people who knew him found him jovial, generous, and a lot of fun to be around. He had been married briefly while in college, but the marriage was short-lived and only lasted a year. He then moved on to a longtime relationship with a woman named Nancy Berry, who he lived with for many years. At the time of his death, the two had amicably separated, but were still friends. The circumstances of Dennis's death were strange, to say the least, which is where a lot of the various conspiracy theories come in. In some of the crime scene photographs, you can see an empty wine glass in the kitchen sink downstairs, as well as a bottle of Kendall Jackson Chardonnay on the counter. Anyone who knew Dennis knew he only drank Pinot Noir. There was never any information publicly released on whether or not the wine glasses were tested for DNA, leaving many to wonder who had been at the condo drinking with Dennis before his death. 
Some of the conspiracies about Dennis's death had to do with an apparent Russian connection on the island. It was a well-known fact that Dennis was very friendly with a local couple named Rob and Laura Merrill, and Dennis had met Laura because she was a dancer at a nearby gentleman's club. Laura was apparently a mail-order bride who had been brought to the States to work in the club. She saw Dennis a few times a week, and her husband Rob knew about the arrangement and encouraged it. By all outward appearances, he and Dennis were actually friends. The Merrills also had an import-export business that supplied used American cars to the Russian market, and Dennis may have been involved in some of those business transactions. Rob bragged to people that he had been a Marine and in Special Forces. Once Dennis had embezzled funds from the club group, a paper trail showed that he had sent money to Rob Merrill's company, Cosm Connex, a Russian dancer who had also been deported, a restaurant owned by one of his friends, and another business called Toddler University, a child development center owned by his friend Leslie Crick. Dennis's brother Fred also told investigators his brother was obsessed with gambling and had taken frequent trips out of town to various casinos. There are theories that because of Dennis's lifestyle of gambling, dancers, high-cost purchases, and travel, that he became indebted to Russian mobsters. Maybe he was embezzling money from the club group to pay his gambling debts and he got greedy. When the authors of Deceit, Disappearance, and Death on Hilton Head Island were conducting the final interviews for the book, they talked to a former associate of Dennis's named Jerry Burden. He mentioned that once, while he and Dennis were driving to Savannah for a business meeting, they crossed the Savannah National Wildlife Refuge. This refuge covers 15,000 acres in South Carolina and 14,000 in Georgia. It's a place where endangered alligators that become too friendly with humans are transported. As the two men drove past the alligators sunning themselves on the banks of the Savannah River, Dennis commented, if you ever had to get rid of a body, this would be the place. There was no mention in the Freedom of Information Act documents of a search ever being made in that area. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Do you enjoy creative writing and entering writing contests? If you like writing creative nonfiction, you should check out the contests over at WOW Women on Writing. Their creative nonfiction contest is now open and accepting entries. The mission of this contest is to inspire creative nonfiction and provide well-rewarded recognition to contestants. The contest is open globally, age is of no matter, and entries must be in English. Your story must be true, but the way you tell it is your chance to get creative. WOW is open to all styles of essay, from personal essay to lyric essay to hybrid essay and beyond. This specific contest will have 20 winners and $1,250 in cash. First place wins $500. WOW allows a maximum of 300 stories. You can also purchase a critique to get more feedback on your writing. Learn more at wow-womenonwriting.com and click on the contest tab. And now, let's get back to the story. According to an article in the Island Packet, the Calvert's disappearance is among 30 Buford County cold cases, meaning active cases in which all leads have been exhausted. 
On October 22, 2009, a judge in DeKalb County, Georgia, declared John and Liz Calvert to be dead. I had the opportunity to talk with the authors of Deceit, Disappearance, and Death on Hilton Head Island, Charlie Ryan and Pamela Martin Evans, with some follow-up questions I had after reading the book. In preparation for the book, they filed a Freedom of Information Act, also called a FOIA, request with the Beaufort County Sheriff's Office. At the time they received the extensive packet of material, it had only been seen by investigative authorities. I asked Ryan how they came to the decision to compile the research through the Freedom of Information Act and unpack the mystery of the Calvert's disappearance in book form. Uh, we decided that we would uh, take the plunge and we uh, gathered all the material that is available online, newspaper clippings, uh, uh, various publications that had told uh, some portion of the story uh, and realized that this is an incomplete story. There are snippets here and snippets there, TV interviews with people and newspaper interviews, etc. but nothing that really uh, chronicled the uh, entire story. So uh, we sat down and listed the people that we would need to interview that could give us uh, the true story. And then we uh, went to the, uh, decided to do a FOIA with the uh, uh, Beaufort County Sheriff's Office. The good news is it was great. The bad news is it was 600 pages and you know, in small type. So uh, we both sat down individually and read every word of uh, the FOIA. And out of that came unknown detail that had uh, not been released before. There were very few redacted, uh, there were a few redacted names, and that was it. So here we had this treasure trove of all these interviews that had been recorded by the sheriff's office, some of uh, which were the, the individual being interviewed uh, was knowledgeable about the recording, and then there were surreptitious recordings where the individual being interviewed was not aware that he or she was being interviewed. Because in South Carolina, only one person has to be aware that there is a tape running. Two people do not have to be aware. So uh, they had these uh, surreptitious recordings and they were quite revealing. Uh, people were uh, telling the sheriff's office and we were reading things that had not been reported before. But, the, you know, the two suicide notes that Dennis Gerwing, who was the accountant for the Calverts, left were quite revealing. And through the FOIA, we were able to obtain the complete detail of what uh, Dennis said. And then also we found, not in the FOIA, but we found it, uh, uh, I'm not sure to tell you, oh, through Fred Gerwing's brother, or rather Dennis Gerwing's brother, Fred, we found the pictures of the uh, bathroom in which Dennis Gerwing died and uh, pictures of the bedroom uh, that also had, uh, uh, he had been in when he was bleeding. Uh, so these are very, very grisly. No one had ever seen them before. We included uh, one or two of them in the book, but uh, not all of them. Uh, he uh, died in a very uh, gruesome manner, hideous wounds to his body you know, a, a large slash of the throat uh, and uh, had stabbed himself many times. 
Ryan also discussed the Russian connection they learned about while researching the book. Uh, through the FOIA, we found several Russian connections to the case. Uh, Dennis had at least two Russian dancers as friends. They danced at the Gentleman's Club on uh, Hilton Head Island. A lot of people don't know about that, but uh, uh, it's no longer there, as I understand. But uh, they used mail-order brides as uh, dancers or strippers. Uh, the money that uh, was earned by one of the dancers uh, was stashed under her bed, uh, and uh, we found through the FOIA that money was paid to a dancer's husband to allow his wife to travel with Gerling, and Gerling entered into a car shipping business with the Russians. Now, this uh, individual was uh, Lara Merrill, uh, whom you asked about, and uh, there was another Russian woman that said she'd been dating a man who said he killed the Calverts, cut them up, and buried them in his backyard. Uh, this one said the man she was dating said uh, he was a hitman. Uh, he uh, then later told detectives that he just made the story up that it was uh, that uh, it was foreplay for the Rus Russian dancer. She wanted to hear all about it before they were intimate. Uh, <laughs> the authors also realized that DNA evidence was sorely lacking in this case. There was a uh, wine glass and a bottle of Chardonnay that was found in Dennis's apartment. And uh, there was no DNA, so far as we could find, that was performed on the wine glass, which had been drunk uh, uh, from. Um, and they said in the, uh, uh, in the FOIA, the uh, detectives said that they were not uh, able to tell whether it was red wine or white wine, uh, and it simply was, they thought, a very cheap wine. But we looked at the pictures that we had, and you could see on the back of the bottle it said Chardonnay, and on the front it said Kendall Jackson. And as we said in the book, Kendall Jackson is not a highly expensive wine, but it's a far away, far away from Mad Dog 2020. I mean, it's, it's a pretty nice wine. So, you know, how they made that conclusion, I don't know. And Dennis uh, drank only red wine, we ascertained. So who was there that was drinking white wine? Ryan and Ovens have two different theories about the night the Calverts may have been murdered, as well as whether or not Dennis committed suicide. Of course, we don't know if the Calverts were, were killed in the office or if right. the Calverts walked out of the office, I guess. Right. But uh, uh, the, uh, my theory is that uh, uh, the Calverts were killed in uh, Dennis Kerwin's office. And uh, uh, my theory is that it would have been impossible for Dennis to uh, wrap them up in the drop claws, drag them out of the office, put them in an elevator, take them downstairs, drag them over to the loading drop dock, put them in his Yukon and drive away, leaving absolutely no trace of anything. Right. Uh, I believe that uh, Dennis was... Uh, assisted in the demise of the Calverts in his office. And I think it was done by professionals who know how to clean up a, uh, a murder scene. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I think that they probably, uh, there probably were Russian connections uh, to this. Uh, and I know that uh, I also believe that uh, Dennis did not commit suicide. Uh, Pamela believes that he did. But uh, my theory is that uh, 
Dennis uh, became possibly too uh, greedy in terms of the uh, monies that were being siphoned off Calvert's account or did something that someone didn't uh, agree with or like. And I think he was uh, killed in his bathtub. He was stabbed so many times that I don't think it would be possible for someone to do that to themselves. If you were going to do that, I think you get in a warm uh, bathtub, a bathtub filled with warm water, slice your wrists and bleed out. Well, he chose to, if he did it himself, put this huge gash in his throat. He choose, chose to cut himself uh, uh, in an interior leg to stab himself several times in his leg and sides and what have you. There was a serrated knife next to the body with no fingerprints. Not his, his fingerprints were on it. There weren't any fingerprints on it. Okay, and if I'm going to slice myself like that, I think I'd use a razor, maybe a straight razor, rather than a serrated kitchen knife. Uh, <laughs> And uh, there was blood, if you look at the pictures, uh, blood 360 degrees around the, around the bathroom. Uh, he also uh, would have had to have gotten out of the bathtub after he'd sliced himself and walked into the bedroom leaving the notes and leaving uh, footprints on the floor. Well, I don't think you would be capable of doing that after you uh, started the process. Ryan said that interviewing Dennis Gerwing's brother, Fred, added a lot to Dennis's background in the book. And, uh, you know, one of the, I mean, Fred Gerwing was great. We tape recorded his interview and he gave us a lot of information that no one uh, had about uh, Dennis. He loved his brother, but, uh, you know, knew that he had uh, uh, some demons. Uh, yes, he was, he was either generous to a fault or he was... Uh, uh, wanting to impress to a, uh, to a fault. And I think probably he was just generous to a fault. And when he didn't have enough money, he found a way to, to get money to, uh, to assist people. It just wasn't his money. We also discussed the social relationship between Dennis and the Calverts. Yes. Uh, originally, uh, 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 Elizabeth and uh, Dennis were uh, cordial. Uh, that disappeared along the way, John and Dennis uh, continued to be, uh, you know, close friends. Uh, and they, you know, went to restaurants together. They were both uh, wine connoisseurs. They both drank only Pinot Noir. Uh, they um, uh, had uh, regular uh, correspondence uh, with one another. And I think uh, from what I gleaned from the people we interviewed, from the FOIA, etc., uh, were very good friends. I also spent some time talking with Ryan's co-author, Pamela Martin Ovens, who has lived on Hilton Head Island for 40 years. She and her husband, Peter Ovens, a local boat captain known by many in the area, run a charter sailboat business on their 62-foot yacht. She explained how she first got involved in the project. I knew all the players. I knew Dennis growing really well. I knew the Calverts. I had worked with John Calvert on a yacht hop experience that we have on the island where people come to yachts in the harbor and eat things and drink and party. And we had it in Harbortown two years and he was head of the Harbortown Yacht Basin. So I worked with him. I didn't, I met his wife only once. I didn't really know her, um, Liz, but I did know John quite well. And it always, 
wondered what happened to them and was curious about the whole thing because I thought I knew Dennis, but you never really know someone. Everyone has a private side. I asked Ovens what some of her biggest unanswered questions are about the case. My um, big question, I think everyone is, everyone's question is, where are they? What happened to them? And the most interesting thing, even though there's so much speculation um, where they could be, the simplest one would be um, something that Dennis Gerwing himself said to his colleague Jerry Burden when they were driving to the airport once and drove by the um, Savannah Wildlife Refuge. And if you've ever been there, there are just thousands of the largest alligators I've ever seen. And my husband said in the early days of sea pines in the 60s, if they had a really big alligator, that's where they took them. So it's just their population is just gigantic because no one bothers them. And when Jerry and Dennis were driving to the airport, um, Dennis said to Jerry, boy, if you ever had to get rid of a body, this would be the place. So it would make sense. They would be gone, gone, and you would there'd be nothing left of them all of the time. The most interesting thing to me was what happened to the wine glass we saw in the um, crime scene photos, the wine glass that was left in the sink when they um, found Dennis's dead body in the villa. If we knew... Um, who drank wine from that glass, then we would know the last person who saw Dennis alive. And I don't know if it would shed any light on anything, but, you know, someone had a final conversation with him. Ovens and her husband knew Dennis personally, so I asked her to give me some background on their history together. Yes, quite well. We knew him really well. Um, He was a good friend. He, we used to take him sailing. We had a charter sailboat, a 62-foot schooner, and he used to take friends out on the boat, like parties of 10 or 12, and then they would go to dinner afterward or else they would have dinner on the boat. And he was really kind. He was still a friend. We were working for him, but he would always invite us to dinner after the sail It was just amenable. He was a really, really kind person. One time, my husband Peter took Dennis out uh, on the sailboat, and he, all the people on board, there were 10 or 12 of them, and they were all um, strippers, dancers from the Diamond Club. And it was just Peter and Dennis and these women. And Peter said nothing happened. No one went below decks to be alone. They didn't take their clothes off or anything. He just liked them. He used to go to the strip club all the time. He and John would go. Calvert would go. So I don't know. You know, it was just a thing. Probably, I don't know. He was an interesting person. We discussed Dennis's relationship with the mysterious Laura Merrill. He would bring her home to his house. And he would cook dinner for her at his house at Hilton Head Plantation. And then they would have dinner and some nice wine. And then they would take a walk around the neighborhood. And the neighbors knew knew that he was seeing her 
but I think he just liked to be with her more than anything. I don't know if it was, you know, anything more than that. I asked Ovens if the Merrills were ever interviewed by the investigators. Yes, they were. And Rob was, took a lie detector test. And, but they never polygraphed Laura, which I found interesting. Yes, he was fine. He was being truthful, they thought. Although those are never, you, you know, they can't use them in court. They don't, because a lot of people, they say if you've lied from the age of two, you can lie and get away with it easily. Or if you're a sociopath, you believe what you're saying to be true. We also talked about what her thoughts were after studying the crime scene photos that were taken the day Dennis's body was discovered. The bathroom was so, there were Dennis's footprints all over the floor of the bathroom, bloody footprints. If anyone else had been in that room, they would have disturbed those footprints. I think um, those were Dennis's. Fred asked me if they were, the footprints were of a flat-footed person, and they were. Dennis had taken a lot of Benadryl before his death, possibly hoping to overdose, but it probably took longer than he originally thought it would. He didn't stab himself like some people want to think. He only cut himself. And when you, as the Benadryl takes over your body, you become numb. And so he really probably wasn't feeling what he was doing to himself. And the final cut was a, a slash across the left side of his um, throat, and he was right-handed. I'd like to add a postscript. What happened to the money that Dennis embezzled? In part one, I mentioned that another thing Dennis had worried about was the 30-day audit his business partner, Mark King, had requested. This audit uncovered that eight out of 10 of the club group's clients had missing funds, primarily from their reserve accounts. Fred Gerwing, Dennis's brother, agreed to pledge all the net proceeds from Dennis's estate to a recovery plan. King worked out a plan to repay all of the stolen money, using money from Dennis's estate and other loans he was able to secure. In the interview conducted with author Charlie Ryan for Deceit, Disappearance, and Death on Hilton Head Island, King reiterated that while it had taken nine years, more than $2.2 million, or 97% of the money, had been repaid to those clients at the time of the book publication. This brings us to the conclusion of this episode. I'd like to thank Charlie Ryan and Pamela Martin Ovens for their participation and for taking the time to talk with me about their theories on Liz and John Calvert's disappearance. I will link to their book in the show notes for this episode. We will be taking a break from releasing a new episode next week and will resume on June 19th. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and give it a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you want to visit my website and read more about true crime cases from all over the country, including the ones featured here, visit missinginthecarolinas.com. And don't forget to check out our sponsor, WOW! Women on Writing, and the great programs and writing contests they have to support writers at www.wow-womenonwriting.com. Cover art for this podcast was designed by Macintosh Multimedia. All episodes are researched and written by me, Renee Robertson, with sound editing provided by Mia Robertson. <laughs>